This episode is brought to you by North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. He has time, launches it to the end zone. Touchdown, Terrence Williams. Goes to the right side for Crabtree. It's caught. He put it on. He's up the right sideline. He's got to go. He's tackled. Sam Houston wins it. The Bearcats capture their first FCS championship. Hello and welcome to the Republic of Football show that is very much looking forward to starting TCU quarterback Quinn Ewers in a couple years. I'm your host, Ishmael Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> your college football editor here in Dave, here in Dave Campbell's and on the other line shaking his head in I'm assuming optimism is Mike Craven. Mike, how are you, man? He doesn't have to transfer if he goes to the NFL, right? Like he's not <laughs> the thing with Quinn point. is he can't be Tate Martell because he's better and can just go get paid real money in the NFL. So this is probably the last time we're gonna see Quinn Ewers on campus, whether it's for Texas or anybody else. That's a really good point, actually. That's a really good point. Uh, Mallory Hartley also joining us. Mallory, hi. Hi. Still trying Everyone's to recover here. from basketball. <laughs> I know, right? Everyone's favorite Mal Powell. Yeah, uh, me and Mallory were sideline and uh, courtside for all the girls' state championship games. Uh, I did five of the six. Mallory did six of the six. Uh, so definitely a big credit there. Eight to eight. Uh, definitely. Three days in a row. <laughs> I was about to say, three days in a row. So that was... That's a that's a that's a marathon. I'm going back this weekend. I won't be calling all the games, but uh, I'll still be still a marathon, still a marathon. So, uh, but let's get back into some football mode really quick. First of all, let's get some house cleaning out of the way. Mike Craven, we had a big week last week on when it came to Republic of Football. If uh, if some people may notice, there's a new show on Republic of Football that dropped today. We're recording on Tuesday. Um, Aggie Warpod. It is a brand new podcast in addition to that uh, soon-to-be-coming podcast, Eyes on Texas, in addition to other podcasts that we have now joined the Republic of Football Network, uh, Gambling Gauchos, Between Two Bears, The Roost, uh, Green Room as well, and we have some others potentially in the pipeline. We'll be uh, hopefully announcing some more soon. But yeah, we announced the Republic of Football Podcast Network. They'll all be available on this feed, so don't worry about... Oh, well, actually, let me rephrase that. Subscribe to the others because that's part of this. That's part of the collective that, we ha- that we're trying to establish here. But we will be publishing podcasts from those specific, uh, uh, those specific podcasts uh, covering those schools. And that is can, that kind of the idea to give more of a local feel. So you're not just hearing our voices all the time. You're hearing people who actually follow these teams and fans of these teams went to the school, things like that. Um, so yeah, Republic of Football this will be a feed now, kind of a hub. We'll still provide ROF, right? During the season, Craven and Corey will still give you the 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 sub FBS podcast, things like that. But now just think of it as a hub for all these different shows. And it becomes essentially a republic of Texas when it comes to college football. Actually, yeah, I mean, living goal- up to the name now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Republic of football. You know, the, the goal is to get, you know, 13, you know, market specific podcasts across the network and all 13 FBS programs. We have six uh, going right now. As you mentioned, Aggie War Pod came out today. I'm, I'm recording Eyes on Texas tonight at the Coke FM studios with Aaron Hogan. Um, so those will become weekly along with this podcast. It's weekly. You know, uh, even if we don't add any more, 
we will have nine Republic of Football podcasts when the season starts because we have this one. We have the Sunday recap show. Corey and I uh, do the non-FBS show, you know, six market-specific shows. So, um, you know, trying to trying to get our tentacles into as many uh, as many markets as we can. And, and I was excited with how it launched and excited to announce uh, hopefully a few more by the end of the month. Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> if you haven't listened, go listen to Aggie Warpod. Uh, it's really good. I mean, Jay Arnold make, makes his debut on the Texas football.com platform he's really great craven will be hosting that one um or co-hosting that one so yeah that one's i'm looking forward to it but yeah this is uh it's, it was a big it was a big big week for us last week like i said we're hoping to announce more uh, on spotify on apple things like that and like i said go follow and and subscribe to the other respective feeds as well that's kind of the idea behind this is that we're all kind of propping each other up and using our respective platforms to promote um so yeah uh, I'll, by the way, go follow Aggie Warpod and um, uh, 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 Eyes of Texas on Twitter as well. They just have their pers- their Twitter accounts as well. So, um, yeah, those will be coming in the pipeline soon. Yeah, but, I'm really excited yeah. for that. All right, 100%, 100%, 100%. But let's get to some actual football news right off the bat. Mike, you went to spring camp today at Texas, first day. And I guess the biggest news was that Steve Sarkeesian wasn't really shy about announcing a quarterback battle. I think we anticipated this, um, but it is kind of refreshing to see him be open about it, right? He wasn't, he's not just saying, oh, Quinn's our starter until somebody, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what did you see from the first day? You had a couple clips, uh, catch some, catch some waves on Twitter, both of them throwing. Um, of course, I mean, Arch Manning and Quinn Ewers, but, um, you know, what did you take from Sarkeesian officially saying that? And what did you kind of see the first day at camp? Yeah, the, the comment by Sarkeesian was kind of a point of like every job is open, right? He doesn't want to limit Arch Manning. If Arch Manning just blows it up over the next, you know, 15 spring practices over the summer, the fall, he's not going to stop a generational talent, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that Quinn Ewers doesn't have a, a huge advantage here. He's had a year uh, under his belt on campus. Uh, he has 10 starts at the college level. Uh, he's beat teams like Oklahoma. We saw him play really well in the first half against Alabama. He's clearly he's a five star talent as well with the perfect you know recruiting ranking. One of two guys, uh, to my knowledge, that had those you know over the last 20 something years. And so uh, I, I think Sark. Sark felt like a dude and sounded like a dude who's very comfortable with what's happening in Austin now. Mm-hmm. You know, he 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 was a little uh, pithy, you know, with some questions about like Xavier Worthy and the broken hand and why he didn't, you know, have to tell anybody that last year. He was basically like, I don't have to tell you all everything, you know, like, and he said it flatly. And uh, he seems like a guy who finally likes his roster, who's comfortable with what's going on. And the quarterback battle is a luxury. Not not normally do you have a guy who can come in and actually compete with a returning five-star quarterback in his own right who has 10 games to start. That's how good they think Arch Manning is going to be. You know, these are champagne problems for Texas right now, and they feel like a team poised not to say they're back, not to puff out their chest, but one just to go do the work, and that's a great change at the University of Texas. That's not always true. There, there are a lot of times they're peacocking to kind of get some confidence built inside them, right? They're trying to talk mm-hmm. themselves into, into confidence. We all know friends who have done that before fight, right? Where they're, they're trying to talk themselves in to what's about to happen. It seemed like a team who kind of felt like they know what's going to happen. And that was a, that was a drastic change in just the mood and tone uh, around campus. And then when you watch practice, there are dudes 
everywhere, man. Absolutely everywhere in a way that hasn't been true over the last 10 to 12 years. They have real competition. Guys like Anthony Hill look like he's in the fourth year of a college program. That guy's a freaking Terminator, man. Like that, that dude is incredible. Jonte Cook looked the part, Cedric Baxter, you know, then you're like, who's that? Oh, that's JT Sanders, right? They just have like a bunch of dudes just walking around uh, and it looks like a team that's pretty confident. Yeah. And a little bit on that, you know, you wrote a piece on textfootball.com that everybody should go check out about the experience roster, but also how it's youthful experience and it's talented experience, right? It's not just like, I feel like a couple, like you mentioned, after the Sugar Bowl year, there was a lot of like, well, this is kind of it, right? This is kind of like the the team was very upperclassman heavy and it was kind of like a do or die situation heading into that next year where it was like, well, you expect them to get good, but it's also like, well, that's kind of it. It's a big rebuild after that. This year, a lot of sophomores, it's a lot of juniors, a lot of guys that will be playing in the SEC. You mentioned Anthony Hill, true freshman coming in. Does that, in addition to that, does that make them on paper the favorite to win the Big 12? Because you go into this year with, you know, theoretically you have what you would hope is the answer at quarterback, whether it's yours or Manning, right? You'd think one of those guys would prove to be the answer. You have a, a options in the backfield somebody's got to take over for Bajan Robinson to some extent and you have your receiving core coming in as well you have talented uh, maybe untapped potential there um I think we can all agree with that and then of course you mentioned the offensive line in your piece I mean 20 tw- averaging 20 starts roughly uh total between those guys so you know does that on paper make them the team to beat in the SE- uh, the, in the big 12 because outside of them you have I mean, we're still projecting with Texas Tech if we're going to try to argue Texas Tech here. TCU loses a lot. Oklahoma, again, projecting a lot there potentially. Um, You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think Kansas State, if a gun was to my head, would be my bet just because they've proven that they can do it. I I feel like I know who Chris Kleiman is as a coach. He's won at multiple levels. Um, You know, Sark hasn't done that. Won conference championships, competed for national championships. He's never done that yet. And so we need to see that from Texas. I I get that point. Uh, But I'd imagine when the odds get real around May or June and the casinos start taking actual cash on over and unders and on who's going to win Big 12 championships, I would imagine Texas is the betting favorite. And that doesn't always mean everything, right? But it's it's indicated of some indication of something. And so uh, for me, Texas always has talent. This is never a question about talent, but is the talent usually in the right place? I, I would say no. They haven't had good offensive lines. They haven't had deep defensive lines in a long time. As you mentioned, the five returning starters on the offensive line, Average 20.2 starts in their career. And two of those guys were true freshmen that started all 13 games last year. And a guy who didn't start last year, DJ Campbell, may go take somebody's job. Right. right. And so, like, there's real competition in the trenches there. You flip over to the defensive side. And yeah, they lost Keandre Coburn and they lost Moro Ajomo. Uh, but the guys replacing them are Tavondre Sweat, who's played like 40 something games of his college career. And the other guy is Byron Murphy, who's entering mm-hmm. his third year on campus, who I think may be the most talented of all the four guys I just mentioned that play interior defensive line for Texas last year. Jalen Ford's coming back. Anthony Hill's going to be a superstar. They added a couple pieces like Jalen Catalan and Galvin Holmes in their secondary to kind of boost those spots. I don't know where the weakness is for Texas outside of history, recent history, right? So the only thing that can stop them, in my opinion, is themselves. And so if they can be the physical gritty team that plays all four quarters and takes a workman-like approach to this thing, as I mentioned in the piece, the trick at Texas is convincing a bunch of Roy's, Roy's Royces to have a Ford pickup truck work ethic. And it feels like a team that's starting to turn the corner that way by the sounds of the head coach. 
Sure. I think at this point, in my opinion, it starts to look at, this is going to be obviously for on-field results wise, but it's going to start to look like, I don't want to say a hot seat, but like this start this season, if the season doesn't go right, this is more on Steve Sarkeesian than I think it's ever been. Right. Because you can look at Tom Herman's teams and say, sure. Yeah. Coaching wasn't exactly right. He still got that team to like eight wins when maybe they weren't that good to probably be consistently eight, nine wins. Right. Um, you look at this team and you're like, oh, this team has a ceiling of a playoff team, right? Like as we're talking about top end playoff team floor, you're probably still looking at like eight wins, right? And at this point, yeah, if you start looking more towards that floor, you start to wonder, all right, well, you got one of the best defensive minds in the country and Pete Kwiatkowski. You got one of the, you know, Steve Sarkeesian is still one of the best offensive minds in the country. So it's going to come down to what we saw last year, which is those game management situations, his own kind of game planning um, when it comes to re- this team reaching their their top end. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think that this team, like you mentioned, the whole quote unquote, I'm trying to think like outside of Jalen Ford, maybe linebacker, maybe, but then you have Anthony Hill coming in and just like potentially plugging that. So like depth at linebacker is probably the only one that I would probably say, but but again, you maybe have the defensive player of the year, Jalen Ford, and then you have a star five-star freshman coming in, Anthony Hill. So I don't know if I would even call that a weakness. Yeah, I don't know what the weak spot is for for Texas. Maybe yeah. it's secondary if Jalen Catalan can't stay healthy at secondary. I I, I just I, to me it's just football IQ, right? right? Can they handle situations in the second half? Because they're not going to blow everybody out. This is college football, right? Like there's a sure, lot of really sure. talented teams. I, I may think Texas is the betting favorite, but I I think Kansas State may be the favorite, right? I think TCU is going to be right there. Texas Tech's going to be good. Oklahoma is always talented. So like I I don't think that they're just running through this thing, right? Sure, uh, but. Uh, they should be favored in almost every game except the Alabama one. And so right. like they're going to have as much talent, if not more talent in every single game that they play in the big 12, the favor, the schedule is relatively favorable. Um, there's no reason for them not to be in that mix in November, October, November, but saying that they're 13 and 12 under Sark. Right. So like, he's got to go prove it. I think your point's a good one. There's no more excuses. I, when he first got there, that roster was in shambles. You can, you can understand how some of that stuff happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Casey Thompson's the quarterback with a bad thumb. Uh, last year, they lose their quarterback for a couple games. You know, like you can understand how it happens. There was steady progression up, but now the next step of that progression is 10 wins and competing for a big 12 title. And if that doesn't happen, people are going to look around and go, well, what's the reason why there won't yep. be many other reasons than the coaching staff. And so, yeah, I think this is a very important year for Steve Sarkeesian in that group. Yeah. Cause it's only going to get more tough when they head <laughs> right. to the sec. So it's like right. they he is running out of time. That coaching yeah. staff is running out of time. This is their year to do it. And that's, that's a good. great point too. Like you, you have to hit the sec with momentum and confidence yes. within that locker room. If you cannot compete for a big 12 championship, why would those players think that they can compete for an sec one? Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is a, I think that's a great point. This is a very important year for not only just for everybody else to see it, but for the psyche inside that locker room to really turn the page and get the doubt out before they go play the Alabamas and the LSUs and the A&Ms and the Oklahomas of the world. Because, yeah, you you may get one grace period when you go to the first SEC the, the first year where it's like, okay, we may not win an SEC title the first year, right? But then immediately that second year, you're going to have expectations to absolutely start competing for a conference title, right? And so I agree. That's a good point, Mallory. Like, you can't go in because all of a sudden, if you go in with bad confidence, you lose that you lose that grace period because all of a sudden you don't know how low the floor could get your first year. So, yeah, that is definitely something to watch this year. Um, all right. We have an interview with Rhett Lashley coming up. He dropped by the studio. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. 
but of course he came in the studio Wednesday and he sat down with Mike Craven to have a chat about SMU. Um, of course, we talked about a lot of good stuff last year. We really appreciate his time, all that stuff. So we'll go and run that right now, Mallory, and we will be back and we'll talk some SMU football right after this. Here's SMU head coach, Rhett Lashley. Here in studio with SMU head coach, Rhett Lashley. Coach, appreciate you making the drive over to Louisville, Texas. Great to be back again this year. It's always good to live in town. I can just drive right over. That's exactly right. You still anti-straw? I am still fundamentally <laughs> opposed to straws. Okay. That, that likely will not change. Okay. That's, right. It's kind of like in my DNA. I was drinking a fountain drink before you got here, and then I threw it away right before you got here. I didn't want to. With whatever. a straw? Yeah. Well, yeah. You thought I, about it. Yes, I did. I did. See, it creates I did. a wrinkle. I did. I did. <laughs> You know, uh, first off, before we get into other stuff, the fun stuff, I want to ask you a little bit about football. How different is spring practice in year two compared to year one? It's night and day. It's refreshing from one standpoint, really from our staff. We had one coach who got an opportunity to go be a defense coordinator uh, at Coastal Carolina, but we only had one of our on-the-field ten coaches change. So for in terms of offense, defense, mm -hmm. a lot of continuity, a lot of carryover. Uh, obviously, for me, being in year two, we feel like our program is a little bit more established. We're not implementing things right now. We're, we, uh, we feel like we're maybe tweaking things, trying to improve, but we kind of know who we are, what our culture is. So from that standpoint, it's been really good. Uh, we got some returning players. So, I mean, I remember thinking the other day after our first practice, we just said, man, that felt like football on day one. We weren't coaching a lot of the things we were having to coach a year ago. Now, we've got about 20 new faces in the spring um, just because we got 15 transfers and four high school kids that have already showed up. So, and, uh, and we've lost some experienced players. So there's that piece is new and we're working on it, but it has been a little bit, uh, I don't want to say relaxing, but more refreshing going into year two, feeling like we can really build and take the next step now. And you've been a coach for a long time. You've been around a lot of really good head coaches. So I'm sure you had an idea of what being a head coach was going to be at the college level. Yeah. Was there anything that took you by surprise that like took up some of your time or was more difficult or, or whatever that was different than kind of your, your vision of what a head coach had to deal with? I'm sure there was a lot of things. I mean, <clears throat> look, I knew, did know going in that like there's going to be things you just can't be prepared for. Yeah. You know, it's like getting married for the first time or having your first kid. Like there's going to be some on-the-job training that you just got to go figure <laughs> it out. And... Um, but I'd say the biggest thing is just it's constant, mm -hmm. you know, and you get used to that. Um, I enjoy it. I love our players. I love our staff. I love the whole part of it and everything that comes with it. But, you know, if you've got 40 people roughly on the staff and 120 plus kids on a team, that's over 160 people. It's, it's something all the time. And so you get used to it being constant. You learn to uh, trust your people to delegate more because if not, you'll burn out. You won't be any good at what you do. So I'm, still, I'm sure there's still a lot of things I have left to learn. There wasn't any like major aha moment surprises other than just I wasn't prepared for how constant it would be when you're not just coordinating one side of the ball. Yeah. But also love it. So. You mentioned uh, the newcomers, the transfers, and the early enrollees. Uh, how diff you know, when people talk about the transfer portal, it's always in a negative light, and like, yeah. you know, how it's how it's going to mess up continuity and, and cohesionness and all that kind of stuff. You know, from your experience, what what are the important things to kind of get those guys on the same page, build that team camaraderie, and all that <coughs> stuff that people think is so important? Yeah, I mean, I, we're not going to where we are. We don't spend our time thinking about the negatives. I mean, look, we can have an opinion. I think when the transfer portal started and it was more grad transfer related, we were in a good place. Place. It mm -hmm. was it was for the right intentions. Yeah. A guy like a Shane Bichelle graduates in three years from Texas. He's been there three years. He's been committed there. He's got his degree and wants to transfer. Like that's what I think it was intended for. Now it's become just hey, kids can go and come as they please, and we're not going to spend our energy on that. We're going to spend our energy on okay, if that's the rules, like how do we compete in that environment? 
we got to have great relationships internally with our players in a culture where our guys want to be here. Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, secondly, we got to go out and compete at a high level with that. And our, our foundation is still going to be built with Texas high school players. That's not going to change. Um, but year to year, this year we've been very aggressive in the transfer portal. We felt like there was areas we knew after year one we needed to address. And we were going to go out and be aggressive and do that. And uh, I feel like we brought a lot of really good players in, both from their talent, fitting needs, and character. Um, now the challenge is we may feel like we've upgraded our roster. We've still got to be a better team, and we've got to become a team. And that's probably the biggest challenge is you used to build programs, and you still have to have a foundation and a culture to your program that's consistent, but now you're really just building a new team every year. Yeah. And so we're in team building mode right now up till September. Too. Speaking of that, you know, you look at your roster that you had when you inherited it and you look at it now and it's, I mean, two thirds of it's pretty much different, I would imagine. Um, where do you think y'all have gotten better? Where do you feel more confident about now than maybe you did that first day on the job? It's um, a good question. I think, you know, a year ago there was a lot to be made of our roster because you had a Tanner Mordecai, a Rasheed Rice, a couple guys on defense coming back. We had some big names and some big positions coming back important positions, but we really didn't have a lot coming back. We lost almost all the offensive production. Um, and so uh, I thought we did some good things, but we were able to see what we thought. And then as the season went on, hey, these are areas we need to get better. Um, I feel like we went out and addressed those spots. I feel like um, we do have some good mix now of returning veteran players on the O-line and the D-line, at wide out, uh, at linebacker that are guys that played last year but maybe weren't the guy, but they're ready to raise their level. And then I think we brought in, you know, the right pieces, for example, in the secondary, uh, on the D-line, on the O-line, at running back, in areas that we feel like we needed to address. Um, we're four days into spring, but I feel good about where we're headed. When spring is over, what constitutes like a successful spring? How is that defined for a coach? If for coaches, it's totally different than fans, media, anyone else. Right. Like, Coaches, you hate spring games and all those things because now something's going to be written one way or the other. It's going to look great, so everybody thinks you're going to go win the national title, or it's going to look terrible and it's doom and gloom, and we just don't want anybody to get hurt, <laughs> you know. And so what I told the guys before our first practice, like if you look in our, our uh, south end zone, there's a massive hole now where they're building this facility. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've moved, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 tons of dirt. Like it's, it's crazy if you look at what it looks like now versus what it's always looked like. And they've been working at that for over two months. It's going to take 18 months to build this facility. And we're two and a half months into it, and they've still just been moving dirt. They're spending a lot of time on a foundation. You know, there's going to be this awesome three-story end zone complex that over 18 months, they're going to spend, I don't know, 15, 20% of it, and it's going to look like nothing's happening because they have to get the foundation right. That's what spring is for us. You know, yes, with all the transfers and all the new moving parts, we got to become a team, and that starts now. It'll progress all the way through fall camp. Uh, but we have to get a foundation offensively, defensively. Like, we got to understand who we are, identity, what's our base offense and defense. We should have a better understanding in year two. And then, really, like, things we got to be better at. It's the basics. It sounds very boring, but like on defense, can we run to the football? Can we leverage the ball? And can we tackle? We didn't do that well last year, not to our standards. So we're really focusing on that more than scheme. Yeah. And so, it's easy to get caught up in the results of spring. Well, we gave up a touchdown or we did or we didn't. But are those things the foundations being laid that we're going to need come September? Same thing on offense. First four games of the year, we turned the ball over at an alarming rate. You know, it's hard to win doing that. And then we were pretty good until the two-lane game. But, like, can we value the football? Can we block at an elite level and understand where the ball's going? So there's just fundamental things that, like, if we get out of spring healthy and feeling like we've created a culture and a foundation for 
really the fundamentals are going to win and lose games. Then in the fall, you get into the scheme and the results. And so it's hard to do that, but that's really what we're focusing on. That's what would be successful to us. You know, people have been talking about SMU and conference realignment with the Pac-12 stuff, the commissioners at a basketball game. As the football coach of the university, how do you kind of keep your team from worrying about those kind of things and just kind of put it as background? Yeah, well, it's a little bit easy because I'm really not a part of any of those discussions, right. you know. And so um, our team, they haven't, we haven't talked about it, haven't asked about it. I think probably for coaches and players, we're used to a lot of outside noise and just going about our business. And... Um, you know, so there's a lot going on that's out of our control. We're in a really good league. We have a really good schedule ahead. We're really focused on what can we do to win a championship at SMU. Do something that hasn't been done in almost 40 years. You know, we've had some breakthroughs recently and winning 10 games and winning for four straight years and all that. But, like, I think there's still, like, this um, burning desire for us to do that. And so, at the end of the day, it's my job for us to win. All that other stuff take care of, takes care of itself and that – I really can't control it, neither can our players. And so they've done a pretty good job of, of not really worrying about all that outside noise. You know, I go to an SMU game this year and you got guys from ZZ Top out there. You yeah. know, you're doing stuff with Eric Dickerson. Who's the coolest person like for you that you've met that you've been like, man, I'm a little starstruck here. Do, do you get starstruck? Oh, I'm sure I do. <laughs> uh, I mean, you kind of stole the obvious one. I mean, meeting Eric, like when I was those OC here, I never met Eric. Okay. He didn't come around. So when I met Eric last spring and actually went out and we played golf a few times out of this place in California, like just to see, you know, you know the history of what he did at SMU, what he did in the NFL. People, like, he's got a record that will probably never be broken still for rushing yards in a season. And so, um, you know, him and Craig James being around a lot's a big deal to us. Um, look, you know, I mean, you got guys like Troy Aikman coming to games and all those guys because either they're just in the area or their kids go. I mean, there's a lot of people that you don't know their kids go to SMU. Yeah. And I'm not going to out them all. But, like, <laughs> so it's hard to say one. But if I had to say one, it's yeah. going to be President Bush. Yeah. You know, yeah. he sits courtside at a lot of our basketball games. He comes and sits in the box at a lot of football games. He's not visible at a football game every year, especially when we play Navy. But one home game a year, he'll come. He'll talk to the team, go out, flip a coin. And He's just so down to earth, and he knows everything. Like, he'll ask me questions about recruiting. I'm like, okay, you're, like, keeping up with this stuff. You know what I mean? So there's some real pressure when, uh, when the president's asking yeah. the questions to get them right. Yeah. And it was kind of cool. My wife actually asked his wife when we met him for the first time last year at one of the basketball games because they had the twins. Mm. We have twins. And she's yeah. like, she asked, we're talking with his wife and him, and she asked him, hey, what advice would you give to someone with twins? He goes, get a nanny. Like, he didn't even <laughs> So, um, <laughs> You know, I would say President Bush would probably be at the top of that list. Speaking of the twins, both sets are getting a little bit older. Yeah. Um, Valentine's Day was recently. Are you starting to get into that territory of, like, girlfriends, boyfriends, having to worry about it's, that stuff it's yet? It's funny you go there because, yeah, that's – the boys, yes. I got one that won't talk about it. Like, I don't think I did. I got one that he'll tell us everything. So, like, we know who likes Which who one's better? What, what's better as the I, parent? I think I'd want to know less. I don't know. I'm not, we try not to give him a hard time because I remember I didn't like that. Now, the crazy thing is my little girls, which I'm their boyfriend. That's it. They, they have to – I've, like, brainwashed them. Like, who's your boyfriend? They say daddy. Like, it's <laughs> – that's a thing. And uh, they've got to say that till at least 30. But um, – <laughs> We actually did have a deal not too long ago because it was around Valentine's and like, you know, I don't know, some boy was writing a note like, I love Rowan in the classroom, which is one of my girls. So my wife was asking about it and she's like, yeah, no, yeah, he liked but no. And, and then Scarlett pipes up and goes, no, Rowan likes, and we'll just, I won't say his name, we'll say Timmy. Rowan likes Timmy and Timmy likes Rowan. And we're like, oh, how do you know? And it's like, she's like, well, Scarlett asked him, you know, so now they're teaming up and helping yeah. each other out. 
And so I think my wife looked at Rona and goes, well, so if Timmy likes you back, like, does that make you nervous? And she goes, bruh, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know. They speak like they're brothers. Right. So we're dealing with that, and I don't like it. But I have learned, I've been told, I can't act like I want to kill every boy they say they like, mm -hmm. which I want to, but I've sure. got to act like interested and stuff. Sure. So they'll talk to me about it. Do you have a strategy of how you're going to deal with, like, the first boy that comes over? Like, have you, are you already game planning on yeah, how I this have. is going to happen? I don't okay. know if I'm going to get to do it. I'll have the, like... I'm learning, like, people, I, it's making me feel old. Like, Bad Boys 2 was like... Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, like, people that are under 30, like, what movie? Mm -hmm. I'm like, wait. And so, but there's the scene when the boy comes. So, you know, what I've decided is I'm going to put all the bad guyness on my boys. Sure. So, like, hey, dude, you want to take Rowan or Scarlett out? Well, you got to go out with the brothers first mm -hmm. and let them take them out, maybe rough them up, just, you know, right. keep it legal. Right. And then bring them back, and then they can give the report and... Maybe I can be a little more good cop. What you need to do is just offer them a straw, right? And, oh, if, no. and if they turn no. it down, then you're... Then I've said this now. At some point one day, there's going to be a guy who's dumb enough to want to marry one of them. And so at some point, like, the first time we go to a meal, I'm going to be watching. And if the dude uses a straw, like, he's got a lot higher, higher hill, excuse me, higher sure. hill to climb to earn my respect because I just, I don't know. You know? Yeah. Again, I'm not judging. Right. I just have a strong opinion. So... You know, the season ends, you know, y'all get, what, three days that, are, that aren't recruiting days, it feels like. You know, it's like a 362-day-of-the-year yeah. job. You know, what does Rhett Lashley go do? Where do you go? You know, what do you do as a hobby? Kind of how do you get away from football a little bit? Because balance is still yeah. important, right? I mean, no, you got to have it some is. of it. We do. I, I like to uh, – we like to travel in general. But we uh, – when it works out, which our bowl game was really early this year, uh, we actually went skiing around New Year's with uh, a family friend of ours from Auburn and – our kids, they're all the same age, and our kids like to ski. So we went and did that. Um, and you get right back into January, you're working. And then the month of February for football coaches is really yeah. when you can, you know, spend some time. Kind of That's when you really, after that February signing day, get a chance to catch your breath. Because February's dead for recruiting. They can't come on your campus. And so, you know, you get like four weekends where you're actually technically off. You're not recruiting or anything. And look, I love to play golf. I love to travel. But I learned this. I don't know, I don't know if I'll do it well, but a while back, like my, as a football coach, if your family's your hobby, you'll be okay. Yeah. Like people say, there's plenty of time, but when you have four or five hours, if you're out playing golf or you're out doing this or you're out doing this, especially as the head coach, you're pulled a lot anyways. Mm -hmm. When you have time, you, you got to spend it with your family. So I, my boys are at a fun age. They're playing baseball, basketball, whatever. We like to go do stuff together and uh, my girls are a trip. So I try to spend as much time with them as I can. Um, but I do. I like to play golf. I like to travel. Haven't picked up sticks yet this year, though. So, what kind of golfer are you? Are you a pretty intense golfer who gets mad, cusses that kind of stuff, or are you just out there, kind of like Chevy Chase and Caddyshack, just kind of getting it done? I, I'm neither. I mean, I've learned that like getting mad, snapping clubs, and cussing doesn't make me any better. <laughs> right. So you have so, been that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, when I was probably younger and really immature, you know, uh, I'm super competitive. So I do want to do well and play, but I don't play it. I play eight times a year. Right. So the expectations are lower. Mm -hmm. um, but I am competitive. I like to do well, and I don't like doing things that I'm not good at. So, but I found I actually have more fun playing less because the expectations are lower, and I actually play better. Yeah. So. I, I'm from Arkansas, so I swing like John Daly. Okay. I do not so, have a swing you want to look at. Right. I mean, it comes way. So I see bombs. the club back. I do hit it a long way. It's just right. I don't know where it's going. Right. But right. I grew up, the, the place I grew up playing, Daly was in his prime in the 90s, and he would hit on the back side of the range 350 yards away, and you'd be hitting and balls would be rolling by your feet. That's so, I mean, you know, that's how you learn. <laughs> that's one way to learn it. That's yeah. one way to learn. Have you ever, who's the best golfing coach 
Is there an, is there a coach that you've played with that's like really good at golf, or are y'all too busy to get good at golf? No, like there's, there's in the... plenty of coaches who get really good at okay, golf. Okay. Okay. But uh, if you're really good at golf, you better be winning a lot of football games because people are going to ask why you're so good at golf. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's this coaches classic deal every year uh, around Memorial Day out in, in at Pebble Beach that we got to go to last year. Rick Newhouse was pretty good. Now he's semi-retired. Sure. So I don't know if he counts, but like he's shooting even under par out there. Yeah. So he was pretty good. He strikes me as a guy that'd be pretty good at golf. Pretty good golf. Pretty good at golf. A lot of coaches think they're good at golf because <laughs> we kind of think we're good at everything, but really not. Um, you know, one of the big things I've heard, we were talking about the coaching calendar. Sonny Dykes gave a pretty good answer at the national championship game about balance and needing some time off and everybody need, like if you could, does the, does the recruiting calendar need to change and like how can they make it to where it would benefit everyone or is this just with the transfer portal and the way it is, it's just going to kind of have to be this way. I think there's some, still some tweaks that I know, you know, the AFCA is looking at and the NCAA. There's some ways to still tweak it because um, that has been a deal like how do we keep coaches from wanting to go to the NFL or get out because sure. of the recruiting hours. I think we're heading in the right direction. You know, over the last probably five or six years, they've added, you know, the dead period in the whole month of February, the dead period for a month in the summer, um, the dead period around – uh, the Christmas and New Year's holiday. So you get two or three pockets where it's like a month that you don't worry, well, if I'm not on campus, kids are going to my rival school, et cetera. Um, I think at the end of the day, you got to be comfortable in who you are and what you do. If we're any good at what we do, we don't have to be up there from 6 a.m. to midnight just so we can pound our chest and say, look how hard we work. Um, look, if we win, they're going to keep us. If we lose, they're not. And they're not going to ask how many hours we work. Right. And so I think there's a fine line. You got to be efficient when you're there and you got to work, but you got to take care of your staff. You got to take care of yourself because if you burn out, you're not going to be any good. And so we try to do that. You know, we try to take care of our staff. Obviously, like I said, the month of February is good, but we'll go through spring ball and through spring and then we'll take the last week of May off. A lot of people don't say, oh, you can't do that. No, you can, you know, and then we'll have three and a half, four hard weeks in June and then we get the same time everybody else gets off. But like when we have an off weekend the season, man, we're off. And I've worked for people that, man, we're all up there all Friday and all Saturday of the bye week. Well, you don't have to do those things yeah. if you're any good at what you do. At least that's my opinion. And so I think sometimes as a coach, you feel that pressure, man, we got to grind, we got to grind. Well, you do, but you also got to be the best version of yourself and be fresh. So finding yeah. that margin's tough, but I think it's important. Was that hard earlier in the career? You know, you just kind of want to overwork everybody, outwork everybody. Does that just kind of come with just doing it a little bit? Probably. Yeah. You know, I think the, the younger you are, you maybe feel like you have to prove yourself or you don't know. Like, the older you get, right, and the longer you do it, yeah. the more comfortable you are with the process, the more comfortable you are in what you believe in and what you're doing. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's again, it's, it's what do you want your staff culture to be like? And uh, at least for me and my personality, I know I'm better when I'm fresh. And I've done it both ways. So, and there's a fine line. Again, we work our tail off. We work a lot. But we don't have to be dumb tough. When you were a GA back in the day, I need a good, like, GA story. Like, either, okay. either going on a recruiting video. You know, like, Dave Aranda was Mike Leach's driver, right? And he's got some crazy stories about driving around Mike Leach. Like, what are some of the crazy things that you had to do as a GA? Well, other than, like, obvious things like just making coffee and doing all the GA stuff, I, I don't know if any of these are good. There's a couple. So... I was a GA at Auburn in 2009, and we were having a big summer seven-on-seven, seven, and one of the teams dropped out like the day of. So we were going to have an odd number. And the head high school relations guy came to us, and it was like me. It was Casey Woods, who's our OC, yep. uh, Eli Drinkwitz, who's the head coach at Missouri, and some others of us. They said, hey, uh, 
UGs are going to have to put a team together and play in this thing. So we have enough. We're like, you know, we were young enough to do it, yeah. but we were old enough to, we were going to pay for it. And then we go out and we go five and three. Like we, in, in pool play, we're five and three. We're like the three seed in this tournament. And they're like, okay, hey, yeah, you guys are going to have to like lose. You know, we want them <laughs> to come back. We're like, what? But for two straight days, we played and we went to the cold tub <laughs> that night. The next day, I mean, we were probably 27. I don't know. But um, the other one, we're going to the national championship in 2010. Talk about burning it at every end. We grinded that year. And uh, I'll never forget, we're driving to the stadium where the Cardinals play. We're playing at the Fiesta Bowl, play Oregon. And turn around, and this is the head coach at Missouri now, Eli Drinkwitz, is sitting here like this. I mean, he's out cold. We're playing the national title game in three and a half hours. And I mean, we videoed him for about five minutes. And uh, those aren't great stories. Um, but, you know, now when I was uh, first year as an OC at Arkansas State, Eli again was the running backs coach for Gus. And, and talk about your first year, Gus likes to work, mm -hmm. especially that first year. Right. We were working, and we had played a Thursday night game in Fort Lauderdale, and we were in Montgomery uh, recruiting. Weather got bad. The plane couldn't take us, so we're having to drive back on a Friday night. Well, we had to be in the office at 8 a.m. the next morning because it was an off week, but we're going to work, and there was no excuse. So Eli and I have to drive through the night, and, uh, and we stopped at a 24-7 convenience store at like 3 a.m., somewhere in the middle of Mississippi, and it was closed. Now, how does a 24-7 convenience store close? So we realized then Gus had figured out how to put the 25th hour in the day. So I don't know. I don't have great ones, but I'm sure if I thought about it longer, there's some good ones. You reminded me before we started filming that you were there for the the, pick, the kick six yeah. thing at Auburn, Alabama. Where does is that is that like the biggest play you've ever been a part of? Like just like the craziest side? Like where where does that rank in terms yeah, of? Yeah, it has to be number one. It has to um, be. Gus, it was Gus's first year as head coach, my first year back as OC. And, you know, we'd had such a great year. The crazy stuff is so the week before we played Georgia, and we were up 20 going in the fourth quarter. People forget both these things. We were up 37 to 17. We we're whipping them, and we blew it. And they came all the way back to go up 38 37. And then we caught the tip Hail Mary deal. Mm -hmm. They call that the prayer journey here. So we win that game. So then, then we had a bye week, and it's one verse two. It's like for the, or, one verse four, whatever it was. So Iron Bowl, like whoever wins, went in the West and a game away from the national title game. And that game was 28 to 21, and we score with like 40 seconds left to tie it. So yeah. it's going to over. Like it was a good football game, but people just remember that play. Right. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's the Stanford Cal game of, of my lifetime, yeah. of my era, that I grew up watching the Stanford Cal kick return with the band on the field over and over. Like that's going to be for 25 years. People just talk. I mean, it was just. You, in, a, in a game of that magnitude that's a rivalry game with so much on the line for it to end that way, like it was about to be the first Iron Bowl to ever go to overtime. Yeah. You know, I, are I, don't, sitting I don't over think I can top that one. Are y'all sitting over there preparing for overtime? How do you even see Yeah, we play? scored 40 seconds left and kicked the extra point and made it. And I remember Gus going, hey, start thinking about overtime. I went, oh, yeah, so I'm looking at overtime. And then they get to midfield. The clock runs out. Saban challenges. They get a second back. Now they're kicking a 57-yard field goal. And we actually had the leading punt returner in the country that year, Chris Davis. So we go out and I just put a safety back. Well, Gus calls timeout the ice kicker, and we're like, hey, we got the best punt. If we're going to put a dude back there, like, let's put Chris back there. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, they, oh, yeah, okay. So they put Chris back there. And on the sideline, we hadn't practiced it, said, hey, if you don't hear a second thump, which means we didn't block it, you guys just, they don't have any tacklers on the field. They got all yeah. linemen and tight ends and kickers. So once you hear it kicked, you guys just run and just create a wall on our sidelines. Chris, if it's short and you catch it, set it up, hit our sidelines, and see what happens. There Geniuses. Yeah, there it is. <laughs>
Um, you know, Cam Newton was here in Texas for for a year at Blinn, mm -hmm. you know, and he did some things. Like you watch some of those highlights, and it's like man amongst boys. Oh yeah. Uh, what was like your quintessential? Like, oh my goodness, this guy's different. Well, the first one was when we weren't going to take. We had had Tyreek Rollison uh, from I think Sulphur Springs was a freshman at Auburn, and we kind of thought he was the future. And then some things happened, and we weren't looking for a transfer QB of any kind. And there was a uh, running backs coach at Blinn had been the running backs manager at Arkansas when I played and he called us for like a month like hey there's this guy like no really like there's this guy Cam Newton he transferred from Florida he's either going to go to Oklahoma and play tight end or Mississippi State and play quarterback but I think you guys need to look at him so after about a month we finally said fine we'll watch the film and of course we see him like jumping from the eight yard line into the end zone <laughs> right we're like yeah okay so we take him and we're playing our first game of the year so you go through spring and like he's not live so he's just playing normal quarterback, and, and he was okay, missing some throw here or there, whatever. And you think you know what he's going to be, but you hadn't seen it. So we play Arkansas State, first game of the year, and we're on the left hash, and we run like a play act, like an inside zone read bootleg. So he's going to boot right to the field and have like a flood concept. He comes out of it. He takes three steps. The defensive end rushes up the field. And instead of like any other quarterback dumping it in the flat, stretching it out, throwing it away, whatever, he sticks his foot in the ground and turns and runs right down the middle of the field 75 yards for a touchdown. Looked like a quarterback draw almost. Yeah. And we were kind of like, okay, this guy's a little different. And then it just felt like every week, whether we're playing Georgia or out, it didn't matter who, he just did stuff that you were literally on the headset going, wow, during the play. Does that make it easier to call plays for or almost harder because, like, you don't even know what he's going to do once it starts, like, breaking down, he starts yeah. freelancing. Well, he was coachable. Okay. And so I think that helped. And, you know, it makes it easier because you can get really good at something and have an identity. You don't have to overcreate because, you know, either you get really good at it and it's going to work or he's going to make it right. Yeah. And we call it in coaching like having an eraser, him, Nick Marshall, Derek King. Those guys were erasers, which means the defense can be right and still be wrong. And so you just try to put them in position doing what they're comfortable doing and knowing that if they get us, hey, they'll make it right, yeah. you know. Speaking of really good players, Rasheed Rice, wide receiver for y'all this year, huge numbers, you know, going to be an NFL draft pick. SMU's kind of quietly wide receiver you, you know, especially the G5 yeah. level. I think Alabama is the only other team that has more NFL players yeah. right now at that position than you. Uh, what makes Rasheed Rice, like, so special? Yeah, I think, especially last year, just the amount, the body control he had in the air to, like, use his body to still catch a ball, hold off a defender, or get a pass interference call was really, it's really remarkable, like the way he could catch contested catches. Um, I don't think enough gets talked about how physically strong he is. He's an incredible blocker. He's super smart. I think people too, you know, he led the country in the regular season in receiving. And I think what goes unnoticed is he broke his toe in the first quarter of the TCU game week four. And we didn't make a big deal about it. We saw he had turf toe, which for a few weeks we thought he did. But then like he played the whole season like that. And if you watch our first three games, especially against Maryland, where he just dominated, he was at a different level of explosion. But to still do what he did on a literally a broken toe, um, that there was a point in time we thought we were going to have to shut him down, they're going to have season-ending surgery, I thought was pretty incredible. And you see now he's healthy. He goes to the combine, and I think officially a 4-5-1, but I know six scouts had him at 4-4-4 four, four, four to 4-4-6. Four, four, top vertical jump, one of the top broad jumps, one of the top 10-yard, like, He's an explosive guy, too. He's not just a possession guy. But, but the best thing about him is just his ability to make contested catches. You can't coach that. Yeah. 
when you lose stars, like Cam Newton or Rasheed Rice, or, mm -hmm. you know, whoever, how do you kind of go about not only just replacing the production, because that's probably multiple guys that have to do that, but just kind of like giving the other players the empowerment to go out and kind of fill yeah. that void? Well, I think, you know, this year we feel like our receiving core may be better as a whole. Uh, we'll be deeper. Uh, outside, we'll get a Jake Bailey back. You know, yeah. Hopefully he'll stay healthy. And our, our system is designed to just, hey, take the open guy. We can find matchups within it, but, like, we're not usually force-feeding the ball. As we got into the season after the first couple games, we knew what we had in Rasheed, and it was like, well, you know, when you have a special player, you're going to build things through those people. I think this year, look, the message is like, first of all, guys come here because, to your point, they know, like, I don't know if SMU's a wide receiver you, but we do have the second most in the NFL, or at least we did coming into this year. Like, scouts come here now, like, who's the next one? Who's the next one? And so guys come with high expectations, but knowing that, look, if, if we don't have a guy with 100 catches this year, but we may have five guys with 40 or 50 catches, like that actually is probably going to make us harder to defend. Right. And uh, I think that, you know, one guy may raise his level, but um, we're not going to force it. We're just going to go through the system and, and see what we have. And then as we learn guys' strengths, try to play to those. Lastly, you know, the American Conference is changing, you know, new teams coming in, some teams leaving. Uh, as a coach, how, do you, how early do you start scouting those teams and thinking about that stuff? Is that, is that later down the line, or do you already kind of start figuring yeah. that stuff out? You know, as soon as we get done with spring ball and the coaches go on the road recruiting, that's when a lot of your graduate assistants, your analysts, will really start looking at the people on your schedule, especially the ones your, your first three or four games and who you're unfamiliar with. Um, you know, so for us, our first games, Louisiana Tech and then OU and, and Prairie View and TCU, those are important. But to your point in the league, there's, you know, a lot of new faces on that schedule. I still think we're going to have a great league. I mean, look, I know that what Cincinnati's been the last few years and UCF and Houston have had good squads. I know they're leaving, but you bring in a UTSA who's playing as good as anybody, used to winning championships. Look, when you have a culture of winning, winning championships, it doesn't really matter who you play. Right. And Jeff's done a great job there. And then UAB and FAU, like those have been the teams dominating Conference USA. They're all coming in. Uh, you see what Tulane's built now and what we feel like we're about to do. So it's a good league, but we will. You won't overdo it the further out in your schedule. Some people like break down week 10. Look, who we are and who they are by week 10, who knows? And there's going to be eight or nine games to look at in the season. So, you know, the first game's the most important because it's brand new. Who knows what team's going to come out in different. You don't have any film. Um, so we'll look at all of them. But, yeah, there's some teams in our league we got to get familiar with because we don't have that same consistent familiarity we're used to. I lied. I got one more. You just you just talked. Right. It's like a coach. Always got one more. Right. Practice. Yeah. You talked me into it. You know, with the playoff expanding soon and, like, SMU being right there as a favorite of one of the, you know, biggest mm -hmm. G5, like, you know, they've been kind of out of the spotlight for like 40 plus years, you know, since the death penalty and all that kind of stuff. How, is, how exciting is it to be at SMU right now in yeah. this moment of college football? I think this is a huge moment for us. I just think everything's lining up, you know, from we've been winning consistently. We've got great alignment uh, in our administration all the way down, the support we need. You know, we've got a beautiful indoor facility. We're building a $100 million football facility, you know. There's just a lot of really good buzz, you know, over the last three or four years with the Triple D in the city and just all the things we have going in our direction that it feels like we're building to breaking through, mm -hmm. to your point. And you know, we have a great history and tradition. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, excitement around um, what we think we can do and what we hope to do um, moving forward. And I think that's just the bottom line is we really are we're working hard. We want to bring a championship back to SMU because we've won so many in the past, but not recently. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, I just think in our league and, and all the things at our disposal, like this year if you win, you still probably go to New Year's Six. And after that, the data says if you win the American, you're, in, you're going to be one of the 12 in the playoff. Yeah. I think only two years since the model changed has the American champion not been that school. So we feel like we're in a great position if we can, you know, learn to win our league and try to be one of the top, or top teams in our league every year that we're going to have opportunities to do things that just really hadn't been done in a long time here. I mean, it feels like for most of my life, it's been a disadvantage to be in a big city as a college. But now it feels like with NIL and the way things are changing, it's an advantage to be in a big city. In I know it's an advantage for us yeah. to be in Dallas. You know, we do. We say it a lot. We're the only Division I school in Dallas, and we are. Um, there are three, three Division I schools in the Metroplex, but there's only one in Dallas. In the city of Dallas, the jobs, um, obviously the SMU alumni base is just, it's incredible. It's really hard to put into words. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes you worry about pro cities and all that. I think we've done a good job. The mayor's been great embracing each other. We've got to continue to win. We've got to bring some championships home. You know, if it's the old field of dreams. If you build it, they'll come. If you win, they'll come. Yeah. And, and I think the buzz over the last several years has really started to happen. And so, you know, there are some challenges, but I think we've got a lot more advantages being right there in the heart of Dallas um, than, than probably people notice. All right, Coach. Appreciate your time. Hey, appreciate y'all having me. Love what y'all do. I mean, there's not... What Dave Campbell's does for high school and college athletics, there's no one else in the state or in, in a state in the country that covers um, athletes and football and the way that y'all do. Y'all do a great job and you're great for our game, so we appreciate it. Rhett Lashley's hired, so we got a new, we got a new Dave Campbell's employee. How's job security? <laughs> better than yours, better than college football coaching, I'd All imagine. Right. All right, keep me on the short uh, list. All right. All right, appreciate y'all. Thanks again to SMU head coach Rhett Lashley for joining us in the studio. Always cool to have head coach just swing by. It's the second time he had him stop by the office. Um, Craven. All right, let's talk Mustangs real quick. All right. <clears throat> this is a team that's kind of in an interesting spot. They lost they experience, are. but also they maybe have added, or added by, I don't want to say that that's different. That's the wrong way to put it. Uh, addition by subtraction because you can't really replace Rasheed Rice with anybody, but they added a lot more, I should say, than just maybe just losing Tanner Mordecai and Rasheed Rice. Obviously, you have Preston Stone coming in as a theoretical um, starting quarterback, or at least the presumptive starter heading in, but they also had a lot of transfers, a couple from uh, Miami, where Rhett Lashley came from. We mentioned LJ Johnson, I mentioned PJ Williams, things like that. Does this team, particularly the offense right now, we can look at the defense here in a bit, but particularly the offense, can this t offense as a collective get better than maybe just Tanner Mordecai to Rasheed Rice, which is what they kind of hinged on a lot last season? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I think, yeah, I think addition by subtraction would be the wrong way to put that. But I, I think the sum of the parts are better than what they were last year, right? Like, uh, I don't know that they have a Rasheed Rice on the roster, but I think the wide receiver room is going to be deeper. I think Jake Bailey being healthy, that kind of stuff is going to help that room a little bit to where it won't just be one guy that the quarterback is throwing it to, they're able to spread it out. Uh, and maybe that makes it harder on defenses. I think Preston Stone is just a better player than Tanner Mordecai, to be frank with you. I think he's mm -hmm. got more upside. Uh, that doesn't always mean you don't always reach your ceiling. And so sure, having sure. those conversations sometimes can be, you know, false narratives. But I think in that offense, for what Rhett Lashley asked a quarterback to do, with how in tune Lashley is with what his quarterbacks do well and what they don't do well, and just making them do the well stuff all the time. I think that's going to help uh, Preston Stone. We saw him when he had limited action last year look really good. I didn't think he wasn't going to give that job back up, by the way. Right. 
if he didn't get hurt. And like yeah. once he got the starting job and once they were playing pretty well and he was playing pretty well, secretly it was like, what's going to happen when Tanner comes back, right? And I think Tanner walking out the door to go play more college football kind of showed like, hey, this is, you know, this is what it is behind the scenes. And so I think that offense can be better, not only because Preston Stone's emergence, I think the running game is going to be okay, right? I think LJ Johnson, Velton Gardner, we'll talk about Kamara Wheaton in a second. I, I think if they can figure out that running back room a little bit, that offensive line is going to be a little bit better. They're going to focus that more this year, and they're going to be a little bit more balanced. I, th- I think that may lessen their numbers, but I think it makes them better and it helps their defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mallory pointed out to us before we start recording again, I checked on Twitter too. Uh, Kamar Wheaton, Teddy Knox suspended for academic reasons, and it looked like Jalen Samuels for a violation of team rules right now. Um, but uh, I believe PonyFans.com is reporting here that they're both, they're all three still part of the team, right? Red Lashley is more like, hey, once they get their stuff fixed, they'll be back. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, th- like you mentioned with the running backs, Kamar Wheaton was the theoretical leader heading into this. And now he's going to be put behind the eight ball behind a guy who on paper, just as gifted and talented as he is, right? As somebody like LJ Johnson. So what does that mean for him? Who knows? Um, he was somebody who already took a little bit to kind of get acclimated last season. We kind of thought he would kind of come in a lot earlier and make a bigger impact. Towards the end, he did, but it definitely took a little couple of games for um, him to kind of be a consistent uh, consistent presence in that offense. Just injury uh, by the way, I just... Yeah. Uh, by the way, I just, I just realized that Tanner Mordecai... I remember Tanner Mordecai went to Wisconsin. Um, With like three, I, two other Texas transfer was, quarterbacks. Was so they've got like three <laughs> Texas transfers from... Texas. Uh, Nick Evers, Tanner Mordecai, and there's one more I forgot, but uh, yeah, they all went to Wisconsin, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, it's a, it's a, it's not a transfer. It's a, um, Woodlands quarterback, Marbury, oh God, he, Maytower. I think he, uh, yeah, he's admitted yeah. to Wisconsin. So there's Something three like of that. them. Yeah, yeah, Very I think weird. that's who it was. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was great. Sorry, I, I just remembered that when Craven said, I was like, where did he go? Oh right, he didn't go to. He didn't go to uh, the NFL. He went to yeah, there. Wisconsin. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so I mentioned some of the transfers uh, that that SME brought in on defense. Craven, I think I know my answer, but I do wonder who is your answer for the biggest game breaker on defense. I'm going Charles Woods from West Virginia. Um, I think if you have a plug and play cornerback from one of the best, you know, consistently one of the better defensive teams over the last couple of years, obviously last year wasn't that great, but consistently over the past couple of years, one of the better defenses in the power, the power five, I'd take that uh, when you're a defense that's really, really struggled the past couple of years, um, even before Rhett Lashley got there. Um, obviously last year under Rhett Lashley, they were pretty bad. Who's your pick? Um, is it one of the Miami guys? Is it, uh, I believe, I forgot the name of the Liberty guy that went there, but, you know, who's your pick for um, the biggest impact on defense? Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna split the baby and go two here. I, and they're both secondary guys. I, I mean, I think you're on the money there with, with going cornerback as well. Chris mm-hmm. Meganson, the cornerback from Liberty, and Robert Rahimi, mm-hmm. the safety from Liberty. And the reason why yeah. is, you know, they ba- both played under Scott Simons. They were both recruited there by Scott Simons at Liberty, the defensive coordinator at SMU. There's fil- familiarity there, the same way the Miami dudes on offense have familiarity with Rhett Lashley because of his tenure deal. I think those are going to be just slide and play, plug and play starters for that. I think they're going to have mm-hmm. three or four or five different uh, new starters in the second year. They're revamping that. Uh, that was the big bug of boo of that defense last year. The defensive line was okay. 
yeah. the linebacker play was solid, uh, but the secondary play was so putrid that they just couldn't do anything. There was just nothing that they could do there. And so uh, bringing in three, four, five transfers in the secondary that can go and compete and he, just add depth and just rise all the levels there. I, I think those are all going to be guys that, that can really play early. Looking at the AAC as a whole, it's a new look AAC, losing some teams, gaining some teams. You know, I have a feeling where you're going to lean with this, but who do you consider the favorite on paper right now for this conference? Because it, you know, two or SMU would. Um, I mentioned Tulane. There's going to obviously going to be probably the one of the on paper favorites, but to uh, SMU is going to be theoretically one of the big fish in this new look conference. Is it a homer pick to say UTSA? Is that no, I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say like you, it's hard you to pick against them. What you do on offense, like of course, there's going to be the thing with what's the offense look like, right? Differently without Will Stein. Um, but you have Frank Harris, right? Um, you have Jeff Trailer. You have Jeff Trailer, right? I, I will say the 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 only quote unquote concern I have with the offense is that Will Stein did such a good job with like transforming, taking Frank Harris to another level then like, is that where Frank Harris is? Maybe, right? But I don't know if there's anything with the play calling or things like that that may, I don't want to say regress, that's a wrong way to put it. But I think Will Snyde and Frank Harris just work so well together that I don't know if that was, it was last year kind of like the perfect marriage kind of thing that we maybe see, you know, a 20, 2021 was still really good, but do we see like something more like that as opposed to last year? I, I mean, I, I think they get any, even better. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. Like Kavorian Barnes is only going to be better that right. offensive line can only be healthier than it was, was about last to say, year. They were right, like awful. Mm-hmm. They were <laughs> band-aided together for like nine of the last nine games of that season, like just constantly injured. They're starting defensive tackles that left tackle in conference games and still winning by 30 points, right? For, Frank Harris has a doctorate in football and probably in something else by the time he leaves UTSA. He's been there for so long, right? You got like a third-year NFL player there age-wise. Right. Uh, you know, he, I think he's like as old as like half the quarterbacks in the AFC playoffs last year, right? Like he's, he's an elder statesman who's been around, who like knows everything. Three wide receivers who are excellent coming back. Zagari Franklin, Joshua Cephas, JT Clark, Oscar Cardenas, the tight end is coming back. Uh, I mean, they returned 10 out of their 11 starters on offense and yeah. seven out of their 11 starters on defense. And that includes Rashad Wisdom coming back, right? And they added a couple secondary dudes to the transfer them. portal. Like, I just, I don't know, man. Like, I, I I tend to be the person who underrates UTSA because, like, it's just who I am as a human. I, I, sure. I'd i rather go in with low expectations about things I care about and be surprised <laughs> than to, like, right think that these awesome things are going to happen and be disappointed. That's how I attack movies. That's how I attack everything in my life. Right. Right. Uh, I just don't know how to talk myself out of UTSA hype this year. There's just no way to do it. Mm -mm. Like SMU has a more talented roster because they've been recruiting at a higher level for, for more years. Right. But like, Mm -hmm. if you're, we're just talking the first 40 players, I don't know how true that is. Like I I give SMU 41 through 85, but one through 35, I I don't know, man. And that's true for Tulane too. And so, um, I think those three teams, SMU, Tulane, UTSA, are, are the betting favorites going in there, probably the top favorites going in there. Uh, but I think UTSA probably has the lowest odds of those three, and that's where my money would go. I think that would be the best bet of the three, the most return, um, and just the leadership at quarterback. Like we've all like we've all seen Frank Harris pull these Houdini tricks for like years, right? Like that's what if it's within hitting distance, like they're gonna go win. And so yeah. in a close conference battle. Give me the quarterback, give me the head coach, give me the defense. Like, I just think they have all of those things. There's less question marks about UTSA, even though they're moving up the conference. Sure. I think one of the things that will go in SMU's favor is schedule. 
Um, yes, they do have the much true. more favorite, like UTSA. It's I don't want to say a murderer's row, but it's about as tough as you can get in this new AAC, right? You get Tulane at the end of the year at Tulane. Um, obviously, UNT always plays them tough at, at in Denton. They got East Carolina. They host. They host. I don't know what UAB is going to look like under Trent Dilfer, but we get they got UAB, um, SMU. I mean, their toughest games probably at Memphis, maybe. Um, or at East, they are at ECU, so there's that. But, you know, it, it, long story short, as far as that's concerned, it might be an easier path, but I agree as far as, like, pedigree and what they've kind of done, UTSA will probably be number one for me. Um, with the SMU. UTSA-SMU thing is interesting because they've built their team so differently. Oh, sure, right. Like, UTSA is a pretty organic football team. There's not a lot of transfers. It's mostly, you know, there's a couple on the defensive side of the ball, a couple on the offensive line. For both of the most part, those are Jeff Trailer, Joe Price guys, right, that they've recruited right. in there over the last couple of years, and it's a it's an experienced team that's in-house. SMU, on the other hand, has had over, like, 35 transfers and about 60 new people into that program since Rhett Lashley's gotten there, right? He has turned over that roster in a way that makes Steve Sarkeesian blush. And so uh, we're going to see how that works, right? This is all still new to kind of see how that works. Like I lean on the talent overcomes everything and SMU is going to be fine. If they have any problems this year, it won't be because of the transfer portal, but Mm -hmm. it's still a hypothesis. Like there is, there is this route where like, there's just not camaraderie there or something. There's not cohesion or whatever you want to call it. And so that's the interesting part too, is like, how do those things match up? Yep. All right. Speaking of uh, the old AAC and kind of who's who's gone, let's talk a little bit of Houston. Um, this is a big year. Not only do they move to the Big 12, but this is a team that is kind of, I guess to Mallory's point about Texas going to the uh, SEC on kind of their heels and not wanting to avoid that, Houston is on their way to the Big 12 after not a great last season in the AAC. So this is a kind of a multi, multi-part discussion. Um, is Daniel Holgerson, is it, is he coaching for his job this season or is he on the, on the hot seat if they, if you don't want to say maybe this is a make or break season, or is this, you know, whatever, is there going to be a discussion about him after this season? Um, and do you, how many wins does it take for him to get off? Yeah. I do think he's on the hot seat. I Houston was sniffing around after this year, you know? And so like, if and, he has ext- a- and like, it wouldn't have been a cheap buyout either. That, that right. they I mean, just, they just an extension. Yeah. Which is another, can we just finally as like athletic directors, stop giving coaches just random extensions when you're not like going again, who was out there trying to get Dana Holgerson after last year? You right. know what I mean? Like he's at Houston. It's fine. You don't have to give him an extension. Anyway. Right. Um, I do think he's on the hot seat. This is what, this is big money stuff, right? The big 12's coming. Houston has been, you know, since 1996, they've been waiting for this kind of moment, right? And they brought Dana Holgerson there to prepare them for this moment. He's a former Big 12 coach who knows the lay of the land. They looked like they were on their way after the end of 2021, but they took a major step back in 2022. Don't let the eight-game win thing fool you, right? That not right. I, not all eight-game or not all eight-win seasons are built the same, and that one was a disappointment. And so, uh, can that defense improve? They're losing Clayton Tune. Uh, they're losing Tank Dell. How do they replace those kind of guys on offense? And so I think there's a lot of question marks around Houston. They have a relatively tough schedule. For me, he's got to go at least seven and five, eight and four. Um, if he's yeah. six and six or below, I I mean, I'm not saying he gets fired, but there's absolutely conversations about it. Sure. And I think that the schedule doesn't help either because, you know, it's, it's a 
it's a very tough schedule and they're kind of behind the eight ball. And that brings us to two big factors when it comes to particularly this offense, because I think last year with this, that defense was obviously horrendous, especially compared to what we saw from them in 21. I would, I'm still giving kind of a little bit of a grace period to Doug Belk, right? Assuming he'll turn it around in some way, at least not be as bad as last year. They might not be what they were in 21, but at least be back to closer to average. Um, it's more on the offensive side because, of course, that's Dana Holgerson's side of the ball, and that's the side that he hinges his hat on. They're betting everything, and I mean more or less everything, on Donovan Smith being a not only a Houston starting quarterback, a Big 12 starting quarterback, which he did obviously start for Texas Tech um, at times, maybe more out of necessity than, than what they actually needed or wanted. But we kind of saw the good and bad with him, right? What do you think of Donovan Smith? And we'll get to Alden McCaskill in a little bit, uh, who comes back uh, hopefully healthy this year for them, who's would be obviously a big contributor. But everything went to who who they were going to, they were going to bring in at quarterback, right? After you lose Clayton Tune, Dana Holgerson teams don't work without a pretty good quarterback. Going back to Will Greer, Brandon Whedon, all these Geno Smith, right? What does this team look like with Donovan Smith, who has talent, who has ability? But does he have things to put it together? Is Dana Holgerson that guy to help him put it together? By the way, Houston spring practice is already going on and they don't have an offensive coordinator. That is awesome. You know, like <laughs> if you needed any uh, any indication of like how all in Dana Holgerson is on this year, right? Like right. His, his offense, like, he's doing it like, yeah, if, I was about to if I'm on the hot seat, we're going to go down with me swinging, not with you yep. swinging. And so like uh that i found i found that interesting uh but yeah i think i think donovan smith is a gamer he's a, he's a dude who like always seemed to come up with the big play at the right time now sometimes he needed to make that big play because he had made a couple bad ones beforehand that had put them in that spot to need that big play and so like sure. that's that's part of the equation as well is houston good enough to kind of deal with some of those mistakes that are inherently going to happen he's never been asked to be the guy you yeah. know, and, and like that can be something for people, right? Like not all of us are built to be the dude. I'm not, you know, like I, I'm not that person. And so uh, what will he do as like the face of a program at Texas Tech? He was always kind of the backup who could come in and like save the day or just kind of like be part of the team and help in the red zone and play his part at Houston. He's going to be asked to be the focal point of an offense that asked the quarterback to do a lot. And so uh, how does he respond to that? Can he stay healthy? How does he handle uh, the Big 12 uh, ground and pound? I think the one good thing, though, is he's played in this conference. He's going to have played against pretty much everybody he's going to see on the schedule. Uh, so that will help them as well. But, yeah, I've always been a big fan of Donovan Smith. I thought at times last year he was Texas Tech's best quarterback. Uh, mm -hmm. But he's never done it for 12 games. He's never even done it for six games in a row. We're going to have to see that before, like, we know what's going to happen. And I will say the one thing that I'm really curious to see is just how much does playing behind a better offensive line do, right? We will have the better offensive line. Texas Tech's offensive line was horrendous. And at times it looked like that was the reason why he was starting is because they needed somebody who could just run. Yeah. Houston's offensive line is pretty good. And I'm wondering, yeah, how much that does and how much that just puts, it takes pressure off of him because that you mentioned he's a gamer and those are the times where he got into uncomfortable situations was when he had to kind of think on the fly and it was like, ah, you know, like I gotta make a big play here. And cause somebody's rushing me and then who knows, I don't know. That's something that that's kind of an X factor that, that I'm looking forward to. Uh, Matthew Golden's going to be obviously a pretty good uh, option for him. And then uh, this next guy, Alton McCaskill, 
what are you expecting from him? He he had a huge freshman year. If you remember heading into last year, we thought he was going to be what probably the third, second best running back heading into, uh, heading into the season, and obviously misses the year. And theoretically, he's back, hopefully healthy, um, coming off over or not coming off, but over fifteen touchdowns as a freshman. Um, you know, what are you expecting from from the Conroe native? If we just include recruits and transfers and just consider those free agent signings for the sake of argument here. If we consider Ultimate Caskill one of those because he didn't get to play last year, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a bigger one in the state. Sure. Like, he is that important to what was happening in Houston. Like Clayton Toon played really well last year. Mm-hmm. But you could tell he was getting asked to do a lot more stuff than he was the year before because they didn't have Ultimate Caskill there to just go like, hey, save the day. Right. Hey, the running, the running game just was not there consistency. consistency. And neither was the passing game out of the backfield. Like He's an excellent receiver out of the backfield. He adds that dimension to mm-hmm. it. I think with Donovan Smith's running ability, that's going to occupy a linebacker, and they can do a lot of fun stuff with Donovan Smith and Alton McCaskill back there. If both of those guys can stay healthy, you know, for 12 games in the regular season, it'll be interesting to see what tech, what Houston's like run pass percentage is. I think it may be more, this may be the most run heavy Dana Holgerson offense we've ever seen. Like this mm-hmm. may go back to like some West Virginia type stuff where they're really like running the ball with some athletes and stuff. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, I think Alton McCaskill is fantastic. One of the top running backs in the state, even without playing last year. And maybe the guy I'm most excited to get back into my life. I, I love a good running back as much as anybody possibly can anymore. You know, like I know that's not a fun thing to say anymore, but like a star running back, I grew up in the nineties, you know, like star running backs are what life was in football. Uh, And he is one of those dudes that you can give the ball to as a runner and as a passer, like 25 to 30 times a game and just let him go cook. And I think that's going to be great for Holgerson or whoever's calling plays for Houston. And again, he'll be, he'll be, he'll, he will be behind a good offensive line too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I just realized that Clayton Toon was the leading rusher for Houston last year. I did not know that till now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that just shows how, how bad it was trying to figure <laughs> out who was going to step up into that role. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think we just covered, yeah, we covered three teams kind of heading into pretty pivotal, or not, SME is not really pivotal, but uh, pretty interesting years this year, kind of new New landscapes, right? Texas entering kind of a new look Big 12 for the last time. SMU entering a new AAC. And then, of course, Houston entering a new conference all, all together. So, yeah, that's kind of could. I think you could label SMU as a pivotal. I mean, they're getting talks about moving to the Pac-12, you know? What's that's true. That is going to look like under the new look AAC, you know? That's a good point. I think you could yeah. label this, this as a pivotal team. At this I, point. I have – that's another great point, Mallory. I, I do wonder – like, what is the value of the season for the Pac-12? Like, how right. much, and I don't know this answer. I'm. This is a rhetorical question that I'm not business smart enough to know. How much, do, like, is SMU less attractive at 6-6 six and six than they are at 9-3? and three? Like, I don't know how much the on-field success plays in these decisions by kind of these big money people. When mm-hmm. would supposedly this happen? Would it be more of next year? Because that's when UCLA and whoever else is planning on moving to the big 12 or big 10. Right. I mean, when is, when is that supposed to happen? I don't know the contracts of SMU and AAC and like how much that would cost, but the fact that Houston and Cincinnati and UCF were able to buy their way out to get to the big 12 this year leads me to believe that SMU would be able to buy them their way out to get to uh, the PAC 12 in 2024 or 2025. Cause I already know the PAC 12's, 
signing contracts right now. I think they right. just signed one with uh, like an extension Oregon and maybe Washington as well. So they're, they're starting that process already. So I just was wondering yeah. when that would, when they'd start looking at SMU or. And I know the athletic change. Yeah. I know the athletic, the last I saw as far as SMU is concerned, um, they have not explored. They have oh, was Joe Hoy had a tweet. Here it is. Uh, they haven't explored have, or something. Yeah. They have not yet reached a consensus about inviting San Diego State or SMU, which are the two candidates, um, according to the the athletic report, which was Stu Mandel and Max Olson. So, again, that's something to be keeping an eye on. Mm-hmm. The reason that that's probably not happened yet is because the Pac-12 doesn't even know who their members are going to be. No, that's like, a good point. That's I, really I think point. some of those schools are waiting to kind of see what this TV deal is about because if it doesn't cash in the way that the Big 12 did, they're going to jump ship. And then at that yeah. point, you know, who cares what Colorado is voting for? They're gone. Right. Uh, you know, really who cares point. what UT, Utah is voting for? They're gone. And so uh, that's, that's going to be point. the interesting part, right? SMU is kind of in a holding pattern because they don't know what the Pac-12 even looks like in six months or eight months or nine months. Yeah, actually on that, um, because this is, you know, we're ending with SMU and kind of, uh, I'm looking at this article right now. So the the, the potential suitors, I think, um, for the Pac-12 have been ESPN, Amazon, and Apple, right? And of course, mm-hmm. the, that doesn't make, I mean, that, that that's not surprising to say. Um, let me see. The Athletic Richard Dice reports there's interest from Amazon in a weekly Friday night Pac-12 game, but that the two sides are far apart in February. Uh, the Pac-12's timing could, couldn't be worse just since last summer. Networks have committed billions of dollars to the future, obviously to futures for the Big Ten and the Big 12. Um, and then Disney's cost-cutting uh, Bob Iger said in February, we're simply going to have to get more selective in sports bidding. So... Yeah, they, it is going to be very fascinating. It's been kind of a, a meme, unfortunately, the how bad the Pac-12 has been when it comes to negotiating their own deals. Uh, of course, we saw the debacle that was the Pac-12 network. Um, so yeah, right now, honestly, this is me not knowing anything, but just me seeing kind of the way the wind's blowing. I would not be shocked if Apple comes away with this because they made a big push for the MLS. They seem to have money. They're wanting to get into the sports marketplace. Amazon as well, obviously, got Thursday night football, right? We'll see. Again, it's mostly on the Pac-12 selling themselves as like a viable sports option. Um, how how valuable does Amazon and Apple see them without USC and UCLA? I don't know. Do they see Dallas as, and, and theoretically SMU as that like, okay, you couldn't get that, but here's this, you know? Maybe. And that's what kind of SMU is kind of, uh, like you mentioned, a holding pattern for because they're kind of like, all they can do is kind of like hold up a sign and say, hey, what's up? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like we're, we're here, we're available, we're ready to talk. And it's kind of up to up to the Pac-12 to see if it's worth it or not. So, yeah. Yeah. With that being said, let's wrap this episode up. Uh, remember, reminder, subscribe. Uh, not all, oh, just Republic of Football in general, but of course, go to the Twitter page, see every single uh, show on our new network, the Republic of Football Network. Um, I might change the logo too because the logo is just kind of outdated now because we need the SMU logo on this or the the Sam Houston logo on mm-hmm. this, and we and it's kind of like I mentioned, more of a, a universal network. So you might see a little logo change on your podcast feed. But subscribe on Apple, Spotify, all that stuff. Thanks again to SMU head coach Rhett Lashley. We have interviewed twelve of the thirteen FBS head coaches. Shout out Sam Houston State. Welcome to the party. With that being said, we just recorded Aggie Warpod, Jimbo Fisher. You can go on. You can go have a talk with Jay Arnold and Mike Craig. <laughs> go on that podcast if you're more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're on, go on home turf a little bit. Uh, and, of course, as usual, go Rutgers. Are they in the tournament? Anything? I don't even know. Big Ten. Mallory? Uh, yeah, I, it's it's close. It's going to be close. I don't. Anyway. I, they might be the first four out, I think. <laughs>
If they are, go Rutgers. If they're not, great season, Rutgers. 